0: one of my favorite hymns, that last line, that soul, though all hell, though everything in this world could be faced against you, though e- even the powers of hell themselves be against you, Jesus Christ will never forsake you. Jesus Christ will never leave you. You're never truly alone wherever you go in this world, wherever you're feeling today, whatever isolation or loneliness, earthly loneliness you're feeling today, remember that truth. Though hell should endeavor to shake you from your faith, you are secure in your risen Savior, and He will never forsake you. That's the one we come to today in God's Word. As we jump back into our series, The Center of Joy, uh, a, a study through the book of Philippians. We've been working week by week through chunks and passages. And I think we've got maybe I think four weeks left in the book after this week. I think we're two weeks on chapter 3 and two on chapter 4. We wrap up chapter 2 today, and we come to a passage that might have had some of you um, scratching your heads as I read it. Thinking like, what? Okay, so Paul is kind of um, reporting to us the travel plans of two men. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? To come to this passage. He's giving us the travel plans of, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. A, a you might have thought, how, what's he going to say about this passage today, right? Sometimes you come to those passages. Well, a quick recap of where we've been in this letter. Paul opened with a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians. And he moved on from that to discuss his, his gospel-centered commitment. His gospel-centered commitment. And Christ-fueled, really, passion uh, for life and for the church. He then went on to exhort the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel in humble unity. Remember, we talked about that last week, too. That looks like... Christ's humility, we had that great hymn of Christ a couple weeks back uh, in chapter 2 that we went through. And then this great inspiring exhortation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and and shine like stars. And and just wait till we get to chapter 3 and 4 even. Some of the the best known verses and and, and inspiring verses in the Bible. But then right here, before we get to chapter 3, we get a travel itinerary. You know when you fly, you get ready to go and you're ready to take off and you, you print out your itinerary uh, with its connections and its gate times and just to kind of get things straight in your mind, to know where you got to be, when you're going to be there. Well, this is kind of the travel itinerary section of the book. There was a pastor, C.J. Mahaney, who said of this passage, no one's favorite verse is found in this passage. That's what he said. Well... It just doesn't have the inspiring ring necessarily of Philippians 4.13, which we're going to get to. What is that? We know that one. I can do all things through Him. That's Christ who strengthens me. It doesn't quite have the ring of that. So what do we do? Do we kind of brush by this passage to get to chapter 3 as quick as possible? We don't do that. We take time this morning to see that this passage is calling us to be like Jesus too. And to look at the lives of these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus to see that we're called to emulate them. You know, every bit of the Bible is inspired. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Every bit from the lists of Numbers and Leviticus all the way to this travel itinerary. First Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable for our life, for growth, for re- re- rebuke, correction, and training, and righteousness. All of it, from the beginning to the end, And so Paul's got a purpose here, which means God's got a purpose here in this passage today. As he's called us in service of the gospel and in humility to consider others more significant than ourselves. Do you remember that? Here's from Philippians 2. He said this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests. We can do that. But also to the interests of others. This morning, Paul gives us, God gives us really, two examples of disciples who do just that by displaying hearts and lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ. So hopefully you've got your outline open in front of you. Got some points there to help those of you that like to write and take notes and learn different ways, hearing, writing, seeing. We all learn a little differently to help you out. So grab that outline. Hopefully you've got a text open to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue into this passage. Well, my last uh, ministry position before I came here to, uh, to Bethany was uh, as a college pastor and a small groups pastor. And as college pastor, um, we, I was in a town, I think I talked about it before, Cal Poly was the, the college there, Cal Poly Technical School in San Luis Obispo. And their motto was, learn by doing. Learn by by doing. It means learn by, by watching somebody else watching others do something, and then doing it alongside of them to get the experience. They were studying a lot of technical, uh, engineering, architectural, uh, agricultural stuff at that school, and a lot of that was learned um, by doing, by watching somebody else, by coming alongside them. And that's what we have here today. That's what we have here. We have two lives that are modeled after Jesus Christ that are recorded for all of us to see. In fact, that's the title of the sermon today. For all to see, these lives are recorded, what a life lived for Christ looks like. We learn by doing, or learn by modeling, learn by by watching. And that's really why the church is called to live in a community together. It's one of the reasons. We talked about it in our life group class this morning. It's one of the reasons we grow as we live life together we grow as we live life together and we model things in front of each other model grace model mercy service forgiveness repentance and and prayer it's one of the reasons we have the kids in here in the beginning we want them to see and grow as we model what it means to live a life for jesus christ you can't go it alone as a christian you can't go it alone. You can try. You can try to do that. But you and I, we desperately need the church. You desperately need the other people in this room, whether you know that or not, or maybe you believe that or not this morning. Like, really? I don't know. There's somebody here I might not need. You know, you might be thinking that. That happens in church life. We know that. You can't go it alone. There's no concept in the Bible in the New Testament of a lone ranger Christian living apart the family of god we we don't learn apart we don't grow apart we're called to live shoulder to shoulder we learn by doing together we grow together as we serve together as we live together not just sit together on a sunday morning not just sit together While that's valuable and important, we grow as we live life together. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are here for us this morning to consider, to look at, to learn by doing and watching their lives. So it's really not just a a, a travel printout of your itinerary or of theirs. It's really not just that. And I hope to show you that it's a lot more than that this morning. It's a picture of two people, two people who had had their hearts enraptured with Jesus Christ and changed by Jesus Christ. And it transformed them into humble servants. Humble servants. Remember our C.S. Lewis quote from a few weeks back that was about humility. He said, true humility, remember this, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So humility is not beating yourself up. I'm so terrible. I'm I'm a horrible person. We are, but it's it's, it's thinking less of ourselves or ourself less, right? We're saved by grace, we know that. But it's not beating ourselves up, it's just thinking of yourself less. Less often, you could say. We live in a kind of a sensationalized culture, don't we? Where every summer, which is summertime, a new uh, blockbuster movie comes out, right? And every summer, it's got to be bigger, right? Bigger explosions, bigger story bigger heroes, bigger drama. We live in that sensationalized. We also we live in that 24-hour news cycle, right, too, where every story is breaking news, right, and sensationalized. That's the culture we live in. We love that, though, in some ways. Dramatic stories, big stories, don't we? That's why those blockbusters make billions of dollars. We love stories like that. But for most of us, as we even talked about last week a little bit, the road of obedience, the road of of, uh, a disciple of Jesus Christ really looks like just kind of faithful, day in and day out living. It doesn't normally look like a summer blockbuster, does it? And we're kind of glad of that, right? I mean, who wants to live in that? Nobody wants to live in that. But we're called to live day after day, faithful obedience. One step, one decision, one day at a time. Obeying when others are watching and obeying when we're all alone by ourselves. It really happens uh, in the day-to-day. Sometimes you might call it the mundane. Christian faithfulness, Christian discipleship happens really in the mundane, everyday living in situations where most of your life, most of my life is lived, isn't it? Faithfulness doesn't mean flashy. It just means faithful in the little things, the daily things. So let's look at these two men then to see how they lived that. It wasn't flashy, but it was day-to-day faithfulness. First, we're going to look at Timothy. I'm calling him a servant of the gospel or a servant in the gospel. Timothy is a servant in the gospel. Timothy was a very dear, dear companion of the Apostle Paul. Think of your dearest friend. Or maybe somebody you've, uh, who's younger than you, you've mentored, maybe in your life at some time, or led to Christ, or discipled. That's Timothy and Paul. Timothy met Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts 16 when he was with Silas, and Timothy accompanied uh, him on missionary journeys after that. It was the man that uh, uh, the namesake of First and Second Timothy. Those letters were written to him. He was a dear friend of him. And if you read through First and Second Timothy, they're written to a dear, uh, common bond, pastoral heart to heart. They had a deep friendship. Listen to the, his dear words to, about his brother and partner in ministry. Look again at uh, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news uh, of you. with Paul in the gospel. One that he has worked with and and proven his worth as they've lived life and done ministry together. But I want to take a couple more words to describe him a little more closely as we look at this passage. What do we see about him that makes him, Paul said he's unique. What do we see about him that makes him unique, makes him stand out to Paul? We're going to call him a caring son. Timothy was a caring son to Paul. He was unique in his service to Paul. Did you catch where uh, he says in the verses there, I have no one like him? He's unique to me. I have no one like him. Doesn't mean he was a superhero, that he had superhuman strength, that he was the best guy in the entire church, or the best guy Paul could find. But in Paul's life at that time, his experience with Timothy was that he had nobody like him. Well, in what way? Paul describes him there. He says he was, he's caring. He's a caring man. He's a man who cares. He's genuinely concerned about people and about their well-being, Paul describes him. He's genuinely concerned and caring for fellow believers, fellow Christians in the church. He was a man committed to the health of the church, the life of the church, the growth of the church, not as a whole, but also individuals in the church. Timothy had a passion for them, a passion for the local church. And Paul saw that. He said, I have no one like him. He just cares. He cares. And so he was a man that Paul trusted. He was going to send Timothy to the Philippians to aid them, as we'll hear in a few weeks, They had conflict going on. There was an argument. There was something happening between a couple women in the church and some other people, and things were happening, and there was conflict, and Paul knew, I I can send Timothy. I trust him. He cares enough to go in there and, and to help and to be there and to shepherd, and he will love these people in their conflict and strife. So he had great care and concern. He was a caring man. But where did that come from? Let me ask a, a deeper question. Where does that come from in our own life? If we're called to humble unity and part of that unity is service and love and care for one another, how do we get that? Why did Timothy have a unique uh, a dose of that, a caring nature? Was he just generally a nice guy? Eh, we might, maybe. He might have been kind of wired that way a little bit. Some of us are naturally predisposed certain ways. He was one of those guys who thought of himself less. Here's why. Because he thought so much of Jesus Christ. That's how it happened. That's why it happens. No, Timothy was not just a better guy or just generally nicer. He wasn't just wired to be nice. He thought of himself less because he thought so much of Jesus Christ. Did you see what happened in verse 21 there? Look at it. Did you see what happened there? Paul mentions those who think of themselves a lot. They seek their own interest, he says. In fact, he talked about some of those people way back in chapter 1. Look at the verse on the screen behind me. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and and, and rivalry. Paul had already talked about some of those that that serve and that do ministry and church work thinking of themselves more, not less. And he described it as envy and, and rivalry. Not unity, but division that it caused, right? They were self-seeking preachers of Christ, he described them. But Paul says of Timothy that he seeks not after his own interests. He says he seeks after the interests of others, not his own. But then he goes on in that verse. Did you see it there? He says, he seeks the interests of Christ, he says. The interests of Christ. They seek their own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Describing that Timothy, that's, that describes Timothy. He seeks the interest of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying to be concerned with Jesus Christ is to be concerned with his church. To love Jesus Christ is to love the church. To love the groom is to love the bride. That's what Paul's saying there when he says he, he thinks of your own interests. Because he thinks of the interests of Christ. To serve Jesus means serving his church. That's what made Timothy a nice guy. He didn't just happen to be a nice guy. He loved Christ so much and he was following Christ that he knew that to love Christ is to love his bride. They're connected. We're connected to Christ. So to love him is to love the bride. And to love the bride is to love Christ. That's what the unity we talk about. We're unified to Jesus. Timothy wasn't just a nice guy. He'd been transformed by his love for Jesus. That's what Paul says. He describes him as caring. His caring nature came from caring about Christ. You know, Paul's described himself and Timothy. He's described them as slaves of Christ in in chapter 1, verse 1, our very first verse of this book. And because of that, he says here, too, that they are their servants, their slaves together in the gospel in verse 22. Slaves together in the gospel. Timothy was a slave in the gospel, a servant in the gospel, a caring man in the gospel, a loving man, a humble man, because his heart was taken with Jesus. He wasn't serving out of desire for recognition or fame, or so that he'd be written about and we would read about him thousands of years later. He was serving and pouring out his life because he knew that Jesus Christ had poured out his life for him. That's why he was transformed. That's how he became a nice guy, a caring man for all of us to see. So let us pursue that too, Bethany, as individuals, as a church, as you think about your own life, ways in which you find yourself thinking of yourself too much. There's a lot of those, aren't there? I'm constantly thinking of my needs and my desires and my wants. And in some ways, Paul says, yes, we have to think of our own interests, but think of others too. Sometimes I just need a bump. I just need a my wife to come alongside me, kind of give me one of these, right? Like, I got to step outside of my mind. I can get so claustrophobic. i maybe said this before, but I've heard it described as that claustrophobic kingdom of one, right? Where I tend to live my life. It is. It's a claustrophobic kingdom of one. That's kind of how we're wired, isn't it? It takes Christ and his life for us to break that mold, to break that model, to break that sinful nature, really, is what we're talking about. Let us pursue that. Where are we thinking of ourselves too much? And as Paul did, surround yourself with people who live like that as Paul did. It's one of the reasons life groups are so important. We want to surround ourselves with people like this so we can watch each other live, not only in our successes, but watch each other live in our failures too. That's what church life is. We We see, we learn by doing together. We see it modeled as Paul and Timothy live shoulder to shoulder. As I'm sure Timothy encouraged Paul and vice versa. I pray, I do pray, I hope you pray, I know you do, that God will lead our church this way too. Pray for me too, and for each other, that we would be compassionate, caring people like Timothy, but more importantly, like our Savior. Compassionate and caring. A caring man is Timothy. But he was also a son to Paul, a caring son to we described him. He was also a son, like a son to Paul. Which really kind of fits along with our metaphor of the church as a family. The church is the family of God. And as you hear people say, brothers and sisters in Christ. Or Paul calls brothers and sisters. And here he calls Timothy a son. The church is to be like a family. He said, quote, from the verses, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy's like a son to Paul. And because he was a faithful son, because he'd been proven and tried, and he's described as faithful in Paul's experience with him, Paul wanted to send him on, to send him to the church to help out. Remember, though, he's valuable to Paul. Where is Paul, again, writing this letter from? Prison, yeah. Possibly awaiting his own death, his own execution for believing in Christ. That's not our our, our predicament. It's not our situation. But imagine so. He's valuable to Paul in their relationship. So valuable. And their relationship was so deep that he still said, I can't quite send him yet. I will. I will. But I, I do have some personal needs, Paul. I need to know where what, how it's going to go with me first. I will send him. His companionship was so dear to Paul. He was really a source of comfort for Paul while he was in jail a sustainer, a listener, and an encourager. Aren't aren't these really the best type of friends, as you think of those words? Somebody that sustains you, somebody that encourages you, somebody that, that listens to you, that actually listens. Those are the best type of friends. A friend without an agenda, really, right? A friendship without an agenda. Now, all of us have done the other before, haven't we? We've all made friends at one time or another, or somebody's made friends with you, and there just seems to be an agenda there, right? So it's a friendship out of necessity or out of uh, uh, advantage, right? Friendships with an agenda. We've all done that before at times in our life. Think of, the, think of back to your childhood. The bully on the playground, right? As you were a child. The bully on the playground. Why did the bully always have a few people like, in tow behind him, right? Because it was better to be behind him than in front of him, wasn't it, right? Those are friendships of advantage, You knew you needed something. You knew something you could get out of it. So you made friends with the bully. It's better to be behind him than in front of him. Friendships that have been used or uh, exploited, we've all felt that before. But here with Paul, here with Paul and Timothy, there was a selfless friendship. The very reason that it could be selfless, here's why. It's the very reason Paul could, even though he needed Timothy dearly, he could send him on. Because as important as the friendship was, Christ and his gospel and the church was more important. Even though Paul needed Timothy, and he did, he was going to send him on because something else was more important. It was the mission of Jesus to redeem a people. And Paul knew that Timothy was just the guy that he would send on just the guy that he would send on because he was that kind of selfless friend. who wasn't a friend just to gain something, but to give. Are you a friend like that? Am I a friend like that? Do you have friends like that? I hope you do. Can we be friends like that? I hope we can. I know we can. I know we can. One that isn't self-seeking or self adventitious but someone like Timothy who listens, who genuinely cares. A friend who desires to see you grow in Christ. Who wants that for you more than anything else that might come in the friendship. Who desires that. Well, if the Apostle Paul needed friends, do you think we do? We do. If the premier disciple, apostle, needed friends, we do too. You need friends. I need friends. We're called to live it's Paul and Timothy, a father, son, and a family. So let's follow Timothy's example, who followed Christ's example. He was a servant in the gospel, a caring son. So it's the first one. God shows up for us, all, uh, displays for us all to see with Timothy. The second man in this passage is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. So that, our first example is Timothy. We move on now to Epaphroditus. I'm going to call him... Ordinary, yet kind of extraordinary. He's ordinary, yet extraordinary. So as we read in the passage and you heard, Paul doesn't send Timothy on right away. He doesn't send him um, immediately on. He's going to send, instead, Epaphroditus back to the church. But as you see in the passage we're going to hear, Epaphroditus came from that church. He was part of the Philippians' church. He lived there and went to church with those people. Let's take a look at the verses. 25, we'll begin at chapter 2, verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you, longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. as we look at him, as we think about him as a man who came from the Philippian church, he probably wasn't a leader in the church, most commentators think. Probably wasn't a a gigantic presence in the Philippians church. For the most part, he was probably an ordinary disciple, an ordinary Christian, just like us, an ordinary guy who was in the church. And yet Paul says, even as an ordinary guy, to receive him back with joy in the Lord and to honor him, to honor him. He was just a faithful Christian, a faithful guy, an ordinary guy, willing to go on the road and deliver this gift to Paul, to take it on behalf of the Philippians, to represent them and take this this gift, this financial gift to Paul. We learn that from chapter 4. I have received, he says, a full payment. And more, I'm well supplied, having received from... There he is, Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He was probably just an ordinary guy who said, I'll go. I'll go on the road. I'll I'll take this gift. Send me. I'll, I'll go. So pretty ordinary. Here's what that means for you and I. You don't have to have a great position in the church. You don't have to have authority in the church or be one that has high honor right now in the church to be used by God. Anybody, each and every one of us, Epaphroditus included, has a role to play. Each and every one of us has a role here to play at Bethany if you're a follower of Christ. You don't have to gain some level of authority first. You don't have to gain some level of honor first. The Papadipas was just an ordinary guy in the church. But they sent him on a pretty extraordinary mission. The question is, do you see that about yourself? Do you know that? You have a, a role to play here. You have gifts that are unique only to you in that chair. That only God has given to you. That he wants you to use here at Bethany. And many of you have been using them here for decades, and praise God and thank you for that service. But we keep going, don't we? And some of us are just figuring that out. Like, maybe I do have a place to play here. Where's your place? Do you see yourself, even if you feel ordinary, to have an extraordinary purpose here? But the question to follow up with that is can we say, like Epaphroditus, I'll go? I- I'm willing. I- I'll get on the road. He was willing to put his gifts at the disposal of the church. Willing to serve a greater purpose, really, a greater purpose uh, than himself. Paphroditus was. He was ordinary, yet was used at this time kind of in an extraordinary way. An ordinary man used by God in an extraordinary way. And acknowledged by Paul in this letter in an extraordinary way. Do you see how Paul describes him? Take a look back at that. Do you see how Paul talks about him? He may have been an ordinary man or not a man of great honor or great accomplishment. But here's what he was. He was a man of great character. As you see Paul's words, he was a man of great character. Great character. Paul calls him his brother. They've been adopted into the same spiritual family. Remember, he doesn't have the history with um, Epaph- uh, Epaphroditus that he does with Timothy. And he almost describes Epaphroditus more warmly, in more depth. Paul was a gracious man, too. You can see it in how he talks about these men. He calls him his brother. He calls him a fellow worker. He calls him a fellow soldier. Remember last week we talked about that idea of, of cruise control. Epaphroditus was one not on cruise control. He was working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Paul had a deep friendship, too, with Epaphroditus as well, but not quite as deep as Timothy. And it's But it's amazing we see here the humble heart of paul too paul shows as well not just timothy Epaphroditus. we see paul's humble heart here too how do we see it here's the premier apostle okay he's gonna describe himself in a couple chapters as pretty accomplished if there was a man who deserved honor it was paul pretty accomplished the premier apostle right calling an ordinary man an ordinary church guy brother fellow worker, fellow soldier, a minister to the Apostle Paul. That's unbelievable. The premier apostle is willing to look and say, this ordinary man who brought this gift to me, we're fellow workers, we're fellow soldiers. He's my brother. In fact, he's been a pastor to me. This ordinary man who got on the road with this money for Paul. It's extraordinary. Do you see yourself in this fellow vein a fellow worker with Paul today here in Canby. If the ordinary guys and gals in the church, ordinary men and women. You're fellow workers like Epaphroditus was. Because he was ordinary too. Like the Apostle Paul described him that way. Do You see yourself as a fellow soldier with Paul today here at Bethany Church. We are. We are. You go into your life, your workplace, your marriage, your Grocery store, trip to the grocery store with this attitude. I may be ordinary, but I'm a fellow gospel worker, and I'm a fellow soldier for Christ, just like Paul was. I don't really think about myself that way all the time. My guess is maybe you don't too. But that's how Paul describes this ordinary man who went on a journey and was willing to be used by God. Fellow worker, fellow soldier, my minister actually. It's uh, unbelievable. But Paul's also so gracious, isn't he? and so humble. He could have demanded so much as the leader of the church at that time. But he puts himself on an absolute level playing field. You're there too. Even as just an ordinary disciple. You're a fellow worker. That's a big deal. That's an exciting privilege. What an opportunity that you've been given and I've been given, you fellow workers and fellow soldiers. Do we have that love, looking for ways to serve and love the church, but also a love for the lost. Paphroditus was that man, an ordinary man used in extraordinary ways. But something happened. Something extreme happened. Something terrible happened. And as Paul called him a fellow soldier, when a fellow soldier on the battlefield is injured, you've seen the war movies, what do they do? You see the, the brave ones and they're what? Carrying them off the battlefield, aren't they? Where they're out there with the stretchers, the medics, raving their lives carrying the injured soldier off the battlefield? Well, Epaphroditus was injured and being sent home. He was injured while out on the bat- battlefield. Here's the smaller way we're going to describe Epaphroditus, like we did Timothy 2. Epaphroditus was obedient nearly to death. That's what happened. It's a big deal. He was obedient nearly to death. So here's probably what happened. A little context for what's going on here with this man and why is he going home. More than likely what happened, Epaphroditus became ill when he was on his way to Rome. He was carrying the money and and he wouldn't travel alone with financial gifts at that time. So he probably had a couple people with him. They traveled in a little caravan together on his way from Philippi to Rome with this gift. And he became ill on the way. So either somebody who was with his party went back to Philippi to fill everybody in or uh, they got there, or or they met somebody along the way, actually, who was traveling, maybe going to Philippi, and they took the news back there and told the congregation. He almost died, Paul says. But here's the amazing thing. We look at these verses, and you don't hear about Epaphroditus' self-pity. You don't hear about him uh, giving up. He finished the job actually even though he was almost dying on the way there and he ends up blessing Paul in a great way he was obedient nearly to death Paul says all the way to death's door is what Paul is saying look at verse 30 again <clears throat> he says for he nearly died for the work for the work of Christ risking his life complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's what happened. He risked his life and went right to the doorstep of death. And yet we don't hear about his self-pity. We don't hear about his moaning and groaning or that he said, you know what, you guys go on with it, you're good, I'm going to go back. He kept going. It's unbelievable. When I get sick, remember that claustrophobic kingdom of one I talked about? It shrinks even more Doesn't <laughs> yours. When I get sick, It shrinks down even more. I'm curled up in bed. You know, I need this. I need that. You know, and we need, yes, there are times we need to be taken care of. You do. It gives an opportunity for somebody to serve you. But I can get pretty whiny, too, you know, when I get sick. You can hear quite a bit of of, of self-pity. My wife can attest to that. She's the one that, you know, care for me when I'm sick, like our spouses and friends and family do. This is a challenging display here for us to look at. That's why it's here. This is really challenging. Epaphroditus doesn't whine. What does he do? He's at death's door, and he becomes more concerned about his brothers and sisters back home. It's incredible. He's at death's door, and he becomes more concerned about the Philippians. Verse 26, For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. So, so rather than thinking of himself more, what does he do? He thinks of himself less. And he's thinking of the Philippians more back at home and of himself less. He's distressed over the fact that they're going to be distressed. He's upset and worried over the fact that they're going to be really worried about him when they hear that he, Epaphroditus is close to death? Oh, no, you know, they love him. It's not, It's incredible. It's incredible. The verse says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What an example of someone counting others more significant. Here he is on death's door, and Paul says he was obedient to the point of death. And he's distressed that his illness is going to cause the Philippians worry. Obedient nearly to death. Now I look at this passage and I realize, I think about this passage in general, how these men are responding, how these men are caring, how these men are loving as Paul is so graciously speaking. And I think about myself and I realize I don't always speak so graciously, as graciously as Paul is, about my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't always encourage them as much as Paul does here. I don't always seek unity. Sometimes, in fact, don't we look at each other with not grace, but suspicion even at times, or or a distrust? When Paul here, he's got such a gracious benefit-of-the-doubt attitude. He's just got this, give them the benefit of the doubt, unless they prove otherwise or tell me otherwise. He's got this gracious uh, attitude of just a benefit of the doubt with these guys. Sometimes I don't look to honor those in the church as Paul is doing here as they use their gifts. In fact, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm jealous. There are times, I oh, look how that person's been gifted. Look how they've been gifted. Look what they're doing. Not Paul. He's his fellow. My fellow worker. Sometimes I look at others with a self-righteousness rather than looking at them as, that's one for whom Christ has died too. And I know, I know this for sure. I would have trouble, and maybe you're with with me, I would have trouble being obedient nearly to death as Epaphroditus was. And show that same distress for my church back home if I was close to death, except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God. And that's what's going on in Epaphroditus' life here. How is any of this possible? They're not better guys than us. Even Paul, Timothy Epaphroditus, how is any of this possible? Here's how. We look past the one who was obedient nearly to death, and we look to the one who is obedient unto death, don't we? That's how we do it. We look past the one, Epaphroditus. Yes, he's great, but we look past him, and we look to the one that was obedient unto death. And that's where we finish today, Jesus. He was the servant unto death. Epaphroditus was to the door of death. Jesus was obedient unto death. You know what's interesting in this passage? It's really interesting. The word for distress that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus, remember he said he was distressed when he heard about uh, that Jew knew he was sick. That word that he uses for distressed, uh, about the actually the Philippians and hearing about that, that distressed, about his illness, it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That distress. It's used there as he was on what? The doorstep of death. Take a look at the passage with me. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly, there it is, distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me." Jesus was distressed. Like Epaphroditus was right up to the point of death. Jesus knew what was before him. God's wrath. And yet how did he respond? Yes, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus follows, and he's obedient unto death, a servant unto death. And Epaphroditus is following Jesus now. It's not an accident, it's not an accident that Paul says that Epaphroditus was ill near to death. What what had he just written about Jesus a few verses ago? Here it is. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not an accident that Paul uses that similar wording there. He's wanting us to see that. When he'd just written that about Jesus, do you see the connection there? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, they could only shine as lights in the world, they could only work out their own salvation. They could only be obedient to the point of death because they believed in the one and loved the one who was the servant all the way through death. All the way through. Not what I will, but you will. All the way through death. Jesus the servant unto death. But defeated death, didn't he? But defeated death. And that's what gave them hope. They knew Christ didn't stay dead. They knew he was now reigning and exalted and lifted up. And as Paul's already told us, he'd already been given the name Lord. He's God. He lives. That's why they lived this way. That's why a man like Epaphroditus, he wasn't a greater guy than us. He just had a greater Lord. He knew it. He knew it. Paul's called us in service of the gospel and humility to consider others more significant than ourselves. This morning he gives us these two examples of disciples who do just that by displaying those hearts, those lives that have been changed by Jesus. So may Christ do the same here, in you, in us. It's week after week as we come to the one that was distressed unto death, Christ for us, but who now lives. He now lives and reigns on high. So was this more than just a travel itinerary? I hope so. I hope it was more than just a couple plans of how guys are going to travel. It's two men whose lives have been radically transformed. They weren't better. They weren't greater. But they knew that great Savior, like you know. And if you don't know Him, if you don't know Him, you can. He's calling you today. To place your faith in him. To place your trust in him. They saw him come back to life. That's why they're willing to die for him. No other reason. They're not, they don't have better courage. They saw him come back to life and knew that if they too were called to die, their body would come back to life someday too. It's pretty simple in some ways. They saw him again. Paul did. These men knew it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today with a challenging passage. A passage that displays for all to see the lives of these two men. But we must remember they are just like us. Paul called them fellow workers, fellow soldiers, companions, friends, brothers in the gospel. The premier apostle did. Because deep down inside we know how we change, how we grow, who we become comes through us knowing you, Jesus Christ. And seeing you again freshly in the garden today. Going not just to the doorstep of death, but through death for us. And through that death of the cross, you accomplished everything for us, securing our salvation, paying for our sin. So a man like Epaphroditus didn't turn back, but went forward, even when he was on death's doorstep. But he has died. And so has Paul, and someday we will too. The Christ you've resurrected, and that gives us hope. So fill us with hope today. Fill us with encouragement today that real change can happen, real growth can happen, and you can break through those claustrophobic kingdoms of one, and we can shine like stars. In Christ's name we pray.